Well, in November, I had the privilege of going to Kansas City uh, to preview a youth conference that our denomination, the EFCA, is going to put on this coming July. And I'm really glad that I went because this, is, this conference is one of those rare birds that meets the criteria uh, that we are very much interested in at WBF, and that is uh, right doctrine and theology. And so uh, I want to talk more about the conference later on, right after the sermon. Uh, but I want to tell you that when I arrived in Kansas City, uh, there was a welcome bag with snacks and a card. And inside the card was a scripture verse. And I want to share what was my verse uh, with you. And in fact, this is going to be the passage that we're going to meditate on today. We're going to resume our Proverbs series uh, very soon. Uh, but uh, today, we're going to meditate on 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And so allow me to... Read God's word for us, and then we'll begin. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The word of the Lord. Now, whenever somebody gives me a, a passage like this, a, a verse of scripture, I, ask, I like to ask the Lord, okay, what do you want me to learn from this? What do you want me to see here? Is there anything for me today in this passage? Well, very clearly, in, in these five verses, there is a message for pastors, since Paul is writing as a pastor. Uh, and that message is essentially that we don't win people to Christ or obedience to Christ by the force of our personality or our argument. But rather, we rely on the power of God as we, uh, as, as we proclaim the gospel uh, where uh, knowing that God is going to use us by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And at the core of that gospel is always, always, always who Christ is and what he's done for us. But you know, since I was in Kansas City with our students in mind, I, I started wondering about what this passage might have to do with ministering to our students and even uh, to our younger children in children's ministry. And I think the Lord helped me to see the application very readily because Pastor John has been showing us the application in Malachi for the last month or so, that every single one of us who follows Christ is a messenger of God. It's not just the pastors, it's not just Paul, but every single one of us. And so whether you are the pastor or, or a believer who's an engineer or a software developer or a ditch digger or, or you're single or married or maybe you're a stay-at-home mom or whether you're retired and, or whether you're looking for work, whatever your role in life is, whoever you are, as a follower of Christ, you are a messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, with that in mind, as we begin to understand our passage, let's, let's uh, examine some of the context for this letter. Paul is writing from Ephesus around 55 AD. He had planted the church in Corinth, 
A few years before, he spent about a year and a half with the people of Corinth, making new disciples, growing them in their faith and in their walk with the Lord. Now, the city of Corinth itself was at the heart of an important trade route in Greece. And as most cities are today, it had a reputation for sexual immorality, a reputation for religious diversity, and for corruption. It sounds a lot like the area we live in, doesn't it? And so here's what was happening. This new church of new believers was beginning to bend to the culture around them. And some in the church were even participating in the evil that was rampant in the city. That's sounding familiar too, isn't it? The church was adopting pagan ways. And so consequently, in all of this chaos, there was a good deal of division in the church. Now, this division wasn't necessarily bad because people were following Paul or Apollos or, or some others who were preaching the word of God, who were preaching Christ crucified. But it was the way that they were handling those divisions. They were, this was causing strife because they were becoming uh, too proud in uh, who they were following. And so Paul is writing to correct them. And in chapter 1, he addresses the divisions that are rising up over who's following who and who the better teachers are. This is kind of the nature of the, of the strife that was going on. And the people were also foolishly getting caught up in kind of the cult of personality and celebrity rather than focusing on Jesus Christ. And that's something that's very easy for us to do today, isn't it? Especially when it comes to ministry to our teens. We can think that we need the young and cool youth pastor who does young and cool things to keep our students captivated as if, as if the coolness and the atmosphere and the clothing and, and all of those things are not just tools, but as if they are the real keys to bringing our teenagers to Jesus Christ and the real uh, reasons why uh, they will follow Christ and be nurtured in their faith. And so Paul also makes a contrast between the wise person and the fool, much like we've seen in Proverbs. Uh, the logic of the cross seems utterly foolish to the so-called wise of this world, but as Paul says in verse 20 of chapter 1, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And then in verse 22, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. So finally, in verse 24, for believers, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Now all of this points to the centrality of Jesus Christ, of who he is and what he's done for us as we proclaim and live his gospel. You see, without Christ, without that razor-sharp focus on Jesus Christ, there's no gospel. There's nothing but empty speculations and a works-based salvation through vain efforts to be moral. And so this brings us to our passage in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians verses 1 through 5. And so as I, as I wonder what God is speaking to us as a church about the way that we uh, minister to our students and minister uh, to our children as we carry the message of the gospel, 
and not only to our children, but also to all of us here in these pews this morning, and even to the people who are outside these walls, the people who need Jesus Christ. This is what I want to explore today. What does this mean in our context? Now, the overwhelming message of these five verses is this. The foundation of our faith is in the power of God, not worldly wisdom. In other words, our faith depends on facts, not philosophy, not psychology, not uh, ideas. It depends on facts, facts. And so let's see how Paul unpacks this as we go verse by verse. I'm not going to give you uh, the usual kind of outline today because I think Paul speaks for himself in each of these verses as he uh, makes his points. And so let's begin in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers. Now, Paul here is led by the Spirit to Corinth to spread the gospel. And this means that he was face to face with the people of Corinth. He was walking amongst their cesspool of a culture, this culture that was saturated with perversity and corruption. These were people who were hostile to the gospel. This is just like our day. You know, the cross uh, of Christ seems more and more foolish to our culture. It wasn't 30, 40, 50 years ago, but it certainly is now. And yet God has planted us here to proclaim the foolishness of the cross. This is what we did a week ago Friday down at Stories in the Park, isn't it? We proclaimed Christ and him crucified, God come in the flesh. Now right now we have the favor of our town and it feels pretty easy to do this besides all of the preparation and work we have to do for setup. But brothers and sisters, the day is coming The day is coming when standing face to face with people who need Christ is going to take courage, real courage, the kind of courage that Paul had. But here's the beautiful thing. Even so, the gospel spreads when we courageously build relationships with the enemies of Christ, these people who were just as we once were. So we're called to courageously speak the gospel as well into each other's lives here at WBF. Part of our Christian duty to God is to both give and receive biblical counseling and accountability. We all know that this verse from Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. And then in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, among many, many others, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The only way that we can do any of that, the only way we can do any of that is when we're face to face. If we have real relationships within the body of Christ, within this body as well. Now, a lot of us have these kinds of relationships here. It's beautiful and it's wonderful. But you know, if we think about it, some of us here probably need a little self-examination. I'm not saying this to scold anybody. But I'm simply encouraging you about the the great blessing and and, uh, encouragement and edification that happens 
when we have healthy and Christ-centered fellowship with other believers. This is an essential part of our walk with Christ. Now, Paul understood that God moves through human relationships, and so he came in person to share the love of Christ. And here's some good news for you, uh, for, for those of you who are a mom or a dad, uh, and your young children or your teens are still at home. You're with them. You're with them, right? You've got a captive audience. This is awesome. So, you know, this is a perfect time to, to just pound Jesus into them, right? Smack your Bible a lot and, and just drill it into them. Well, I remember trying to do that with our sons. I remember even getting very angry at them uh, when they said something or did something I didn't like, and we'd have an a argument about God or something like that, and I'd say, but God loves you. He died for you. Now go to your room. Great evangelism, isn't it? I also remember delivering long soliloquies to them, doing my best to, to convince them of the truth, trying to get them to love Jesus and to love obedience. You can imagine how all that went. And I got to tell you, they are believers today in spite of my efforts. It is definitely a work of God. I had some good moments too. But... Anyway, this is all part of what Paul gets at in the rest of verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, it's not the force of our argument that changes the hearts of our children. It's not the, how great we are at debating that changes uh, the hearts of the people sitting in the pews with you today. It's not what changes those who don't know Christ outside these walls. I had a friend in college who was, man, he was a walking encyclopedia of scripture. And he was, his understanding of the Christian worldview was phenomenal and he was a world-class debater so he could he could convince you of anything he was very very good and so one day during lunch uh, I was with him and he, I remember this vividly I was sitting across the table from him and uh, and he got into a debate with some unbelievers at our table and I mean it was a real debate and so very quickly his forehead was all wrinkled and his eyes were blazing as he was, he was just pounding in his points. He was going to win that argument, but he wasn't going to win any souls. Now, he understood the error of his ways not long after that and, uh, and became a very loving uh, person when it came to sharing his faith. But you know, this is the same thing that I was guilty w w with, with my sons at, at times, I wanted to convince them to follow Christ. And in doing so, I was forgetting that it's the work of the Holy Spirit, not me, that brings them to Christ. I play a part in that, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit to change their hearts. Now, the people of Corinth actually enjoyed debating philosophical questions. They loved it. This is what they were all about. All of these endless debates that come to no real conclusion. You know, heaven forbid that you come to a conclusion. Uh, but these teachers would come into to the town and they would gather students and therefore become rich from their wealthy parents who paid them to teach their, their children. They would set up these little schools. And the way that they won 
their students was by the force of their argument, uh, by their ability to debate, their rhetoric and lofty ideas. They became celebrities as their popularity and their wealth grew. And they used theatrics and techniques to manipulate people's thoughts. And so that's exactly why Paul declares in the next verse, in verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is a beautiful statement. Now, you might be thinking, you know, I've read through the letters of Paul and, and I realize that he was very capable of eloquence and he was quite skilled in rhetoric and argument. But his point here in this passage isn't that we abandon all of that, that we abandon excellence in communicating the gospel. Of course, we need to stick to that. We need to know our stuff. We need to study our Bibles. We need to, to understand doctrine and theology as well as we can because that informs us about who Christ is and what he's done for us. And so it's not okay for a pastor uh, to come unprepared on a Sunday morning and give a mediocre sermon, all right? It, it's, uh, it's not right for a pastor to come into the church not having studied and, and uh, prepared and just kind of wing it up here thinking that he's depending totally on the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit uses that study. And likewise, all of us need to study our Bibles and its doctrine. But in verse 2, Paul is making it very clear that he did not come to Corinth to be a celebrity or to make any money by theatrics. In fact, he refused to be paid for that very reason. He didn't want to give that impression that he was just another uh, orator in Corinth. He came, after all, to make Jesus famous, not himself. And he came uh, to make the people rich with the knowledge of Jesus Christ simply by telling them the facts of who Christ is and what he has done and what he will do. And in knowing nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul is laying the foundation for everything having to do with the life of a follower of Christ. Not only our salvation, but also the process of our sanctification, uh, the, the way that we ought to live, uh, the morals, the, the values that we ought to have, uh, and our eternal hope. But you see... You'll hear, you'll hear people say that the basis of religion is morals and ethics. I heard somebody say that this week. Certainly most religions do have to do with a, a view to right living and right thinking. We could even say that Christianity points us in that direction. But in Christ, he is the foundation for our obedience. What he has done and who he is is the foundation for why we obey. Because see... Uh, Paul here is saying something monumentally profound. He is declaring that faith in Christ is not faith in ideas, but in facts. Namely, that what brings people to saving faith and what motivates us as believers to walk in holiness is the fact that God came in the flesh and dwelt among us. And the fact that, that his father sent him to die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And also the fact that the Holy Spirit seals us forever in God's kingdom 
through our faith in Christ. And he gives us understanding of God and his word. And at the same, and, and, and the very same one who died on the cross rose again. This is a fact. He ascended into heaven to be our mediator between us and the Father. This is a fact. And he will be our mediator until he comes someday to take us to glory. It's these very facts that the unbelieving Corinthians called foolishness. And Paul stood in the middle of them and said, I'm going to preach the foolishness of the cross. And uh, back, going back to verse 21 of the chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And so the idea uh, in the Corinthian mind of preaching about a crucified Savior, it just made absolutely no sense to these people that Paul was preaching to. It defied their logic. Because the way they looked at it is that that Paul is preaching about a loser who dies a, a very shameful death. The idea of dying on a cross is something... I don't know that we have the full impact of that today because we're so used to talking about the cross, the cross, the cross. We see it as a symbol of God's glory and of his grace and forgiveness. But to the Corinthian people, they saw it as the most shameful thing that could happen to anybody. And certainly a savior couldn't die on one of those. Only a loser would die on one of those. So the idea that this loser could somehow save anyone was just absolute perverse silliness to their way of thinking. You know, as I think about this, I think this might be why sometimes it's hard for, for especially teenagers to understand the gospel, much less little kids. It's because we're telling them something that lacks worldly logic. You see, our teenagers are at a stage in life where naturally they'd rather be popular, be on the winning side. Is there anyone here who loves to be on the losing side? Absolutely not, except that we are followers of Christ, amen, because he has the victory. The world thinks we're losers, but he has the victory. But you see, increasingly from a worldly point of view, we are the losers. We are the losers. And so we're thinking, well, we've got to win them over somehow. So, so then we become tempted to turn, turn to gimmicks to win them over. We concentrate on God's love and we gloss over the fact that every single sinner, including our sweet, adorable, wonderful children, deserve the unmitigated and eternal wrath of God. That raises the level of importance of preaching the gospel to them, doesn't it? That raises the level of showing them who Christ is and what he's done. But you know, it's hard to convince a kid who's grown up in a Christian home that he or she is a sinner, at least of the variety that deserves God's wrath. And so we start to think, well, maybe, maybe the nicer we make the gospel seem, it'll be easier for our kids to swallow it. The easiest way to do that, of course, is to start cherry-picking scriptures for the palatable bits and ignore all of the convicting stuff. 
We also start to think, well, we've got to change the, thing, the clothes that we wear and the lighting and the sanctuary and all of those things. I heard a youth pastor uh, in another state uh, say something about this. We've got to change the atmosphere to make church a cool place and, and with fun stuff going on if we're going to reach our kids. That's what he said. Now, I'm convinced that we need to come to them, to our children, just as Paul came to the Corinthians. But I had this uneasy feeling that what he meant is that the atmosphere was the key to bringing them to salvation, even if it meant bringing some of the world into church. But Paul declares that proclaiming the facts about Christ, that is, nothing except Christ and him crucified, he was saying that, that by preaching that to the Corinthians, this is what changed them. And this is what we as parents and we as volunteers uh, in children's ministry or student ministry, uh, we as fellow brothers and sisters in connect groups or wherever, whatever we're doing, all of this is what we need to remember that no matter what we're teaching, if we're teaching complex doctrine in our student ministry Sunday school class, we're going over the end times. That's a lot of complex stuff. But what we've always got to remember is that we need to, teach and preach Christ and him crucified. This has to be, it has to be the foundation of everything we do as Christians. I remember one way that I tried to teach my kids about obedience. I would say something like, well, do or don't do such and such and God will be happy with you. Well, then I started thinking about it. Wait a minute, I, they're young. I don't know if they're believers or not. And I realized what I was really saying to them is that if you do or don't do these things, God will either be happy or unhappy with you. You'll either be saved or doomed. That was a way of, a subtle way of preaching a works-based salvation. We must never do that. Now, the real reason we're called to obedience is because Christ died for us and he saves us from God's eternal wrath. So we obey out of gratitude and worship because of what he's done. And so even our obedience is based on these fundamental facts of our faith, not on philosophy, not on ideas or psychology, not on the force of anybody's argument. It's based on the fact of who Christ is and what he's done for us. And so moving on to verse 3, Paul makes a confession of sorts. He says that I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Now, we've already seen how Paul was courageous to go to a bustling city where people were hostile to the gospel. Paul's weakness and fear isn't so much being afraid of death because Paul had put himself in dangerous situations numerous times for the sake of the gospel. But you know, he'd been beaten up a lot, literally beaten up, beaten with rods and whips, been punched, thrown into prison. He'd suffered uh, from not enough food and all kinds of deprivation. Did all of this for the sake of the gospel but at the same time, he was emotionally drained. But here he's recognizing that this is exactly where God wants him to be because he knows that the Holy Spirit is going to use him in his weaknesses to make the gospel message clear. 
Now, we've heard that being brave means that you are scared, but you do the right thing anyway. I think the best way to put that for believers is that while the flesh trembles, the spirit has courage to go on being trustful in God. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul uh, writes this. He says, but Christ said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so this is an expression of Paul's profound humbleness before God. Paul is boasting of his own weaknesses because he knows the Holy Spirit is going to speak through him. In fact, Paul was so weak that the Holy Spirit could use him. And that's because his ego and his pride weren't in the way. Paul wasn't depending on on the force of his argument. He was depending on the Holy Spirit to change hearts and lives. And the profound importance of preaching the word of God to people who are hearing it for the first time is something that weighed heavily upon Paul. He saw this as a grave responsibility, and so should we. And he knew that he could not do it that is, preach the word, preach the gospel. He knew that he couldn't do it by winning a debate. He couldn't do it by, by strong arguments and manipulation and all of those kinds of things. He could only do it by relying on the power of God. Boasting of our weaknesses makes no sense in today's world, does it? We want power even as Christians, and so we want to win elections. We want to be the victors in public debates and so on. But you know, uh, this power-hungry uh, attitude has even uh, come into the church. It's been there for centuries, actually. There are power struggles within churches. There's even a temptation at home to give the impression to our kids that we're strong. We got it all together, man. We're self-reliant, we're self-sufficient. We got this, we got this. But Paul walked into a city of perversity and ego full of people trying to impress each other and essentially said this, here I am, I'm a weakling. I'm a weakling and I am absolutely nothing except that Christ is in me. And so I'm gonna tell you the facts about my loser savior as you call him who died a terrible and shameful death on a cross and it is God who is speaking through me and I know that by his power some of you are going to come to saving faith this is exactly the kind of humbleness we need to minister to our children we need to be appropriately vulnerable to our kids we need to admit that we also are weak. We need to confess that we also deserve God's unmitigated and eternal wrath, that we are nothing without the presence of Christ, nothing without the spirit and the power of God. And this is why Paul declares it in verse 4, this very truth. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, Paul uh, means that the only way that he could effectively preach the gospel 
was to depend entirely on the Holy Spirit and the power of God to change people's hearts. I like to say that the human heart is absolutely the hardest and densest material in the whole universe. And only an act of God can change our hearts from loving evil to loving and desiring the Lord and his holiness. Isn't that true? Whether we're a pastor or not, we've got to learn to rely on the Holy Spirit as we speak the gospel unto other people. We've got to, to depend first and foremost on the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to be our help and our guide. You know, I could, I could learn to be the most gifted orator, an expert in rhetoric and, and debate and all those kinds of things, and I would be the worst preacher in the world if I didn't have the Holy Spirit, if I didn't rely on the Holy Spirit, if instead I relied on my ability to, to tweak your minds and, and uh, manipulate you. And you know what? The same thing is true for all of us. If we become adept at winning arguments like my college friend, but lack the Holy Spirit's guidance. We're just making a bunch of noise. As part of the Holy Spirit's presence is what Paul is really talking about in 1 Corinthians 13, later on in this letter. By the Spirit's presence, if we do not have love, uh, then we are just clanging symbols. And it is the Holy Spirit, and it is our faith in Christ who plants that love in us. But what does it mean exactly for us to have the Holy Spirit's guidance? How does that work? Well, first and foremost, the Holy Spirit is available to everyone who's truly saved. In fact, he comes and lives in us as soon as we are saved. The Holy Spirit, this is very important for us to understand, the Holy Spirit is a who and not an it. He is God. He is the third person of our triune God, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit isn't, isn't like the force in Star Wars where Luke Skywalker is, you know, just tapping into it somehow because that force is there and he can, I don't know how he did it, but anyway. <laughs> that's not what we're talking about here. The Holy Spirit was there when the earth was without form and void. The Holy Spirit lives in every believer. And in John's gospel, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper. And so the Holy Spirit helped Paul as he preached in a hostile environment. And the Holy Spirit will help us as we preach to our children, as we preach to each other. As we navigate the issues of life, navigate the issues of raising our children, the Holy Spirit will help us as we minister to each other and to our town. And it is the helper who has or will change the hearts of our students. It is the Holy Spirit who will draw them to true faith in Christ. He is the one who works in their hearts. And the Holy Spirit, as Jesus says in John 16, 8, will convict, convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And this is what the verses following our passage, beginning in verse 6, talk about. These verses declare that the true, that true wisdom comes from the Holy Spirit. Verse 12 of chapter 2 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So brothers and sisters, 
We don't need to win any arguments. We don't need to be the victors in debates and that sort of thing. All we really got to do is declare the wisdom of God as it has been revealed to us. Namely, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now surely, again, we also ought to learn and teach the Christian worldview and all of the complexities of biblical doctrine and theology, but those things are to help us along in our faith as we walk, our walk of, of learning to, be, uh, uh, to live a holy life. And also those things help us as we do evangelize because we understand on a deeper level who Christ is and what he's done for us. That's what theology and doctrine are all about. But as we learn those things and as we teach those things, we have always got to remember that the business of winning our children's souls, or for that matter, anybody's souls, is way above our pay grade. We are weak, just like Paul. We are nothing without Christ. We have no ability to bear witness to him without the Holy Spirit. And so Paul declares next in verse 5 the purpose of his weakness, that is, his reliance on the Holy Spirit. He relies on the Holy Spirit in verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I made the mistake one time of, uh, relying on my own power to convince someone to be saved. I argued logically, I argued forcefully, I made plausible arguments, but I pushed him, this guy way too hard to get him to recite the sinner's prayer. And he felt pressure from me, and so he recited the sinner's prayer. But in the end, he didn't accept the most important facts, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you see, I wasn't relying on the Holy Spirit. I was relying on my own ability to argue with somebody. I was trying to win an argument and not a soul. And so when Paul speaks of the, the power of God, this is what we're talking about, the power of God. Uh, he means power on a whole bunch of different levels. And just to name a few, he's, he's uh, thinking of the power of God to create, the power of God to love his people and be faithful to them, even when they're not. His power to be the true judge of mankind. His power to come in the flesh and save his people from his wrath. His power to change our hearts, to love Christ and his holiness. His power to make all things new someday and to take us to glory, to live with him forever. All of these things are facts, brothers and sisters. They're facts. We can thumb through the pages of our Bibles and find them all. The history is all there along with these beautiful and complex explanations for what it all means but it all hinges on one very simple fact. And I think Paul expresses it beautifully and simply in Romans verse eight, among many other places. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that the, the, the truth upon which everything hangs? 
This is the theme that we've got to return to over and over and over and over again with our children at home and here during children's church and Sunday school. Uh, We've got to to be talking about it amongst ourselves all the time. Uh, No matter where we are or what we're doing, when we're talking to a believer, this has to be our central theme. And we've got to remind especially our, our teens that our faith is about facts. It's not about ideas. It's not about philosophy. It's not about morals that stand on their own. It's not about ethics that stand on their own with no foundation. Our faith depends on the fact that our Lord was born as a little baby uh, and, and he lived a perfect life and he, and he became our perfect sacrifice. Our faith depends on the fact of his burial and his resurrection and his ascension and the fact that someday he will return. These are facts of history and the, spe- the, the facts speak for themselves, don't they? We don't have to coerce or manipulate anybody. All we need to do is repeat these facts of what Christ has done for us, who he is, the grace that he has shown us through the cross. And this is why every sermon at WBF is going to end up somewhere or another at the cross. Because nothing matters if Christ did not die for us. It erases the whole gospel. We have no hope if that did not happen, and it did. Our children have no hope if that did not happen, and our morals and our ethics become vain attempts to win our own souls. But Christ did die for us. He did. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the wisdom of God. This is the foundation of our faith in the power of God to do all of these things. Christ won our souls. He is the foundation of everything, of our obedience, of our sanctification, of our entire lives, and he is the foundation of our hope. The beautiful doctrines of Scripture come alive when we understand the factual, historical reality of the cross and why Christ died. And how do we understand that? We understand that reality only by the power of God. And so may all of us, may all of us become fools for Christ. May we all know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified to our children, to our students, to each other, and to our town. Amen? Well, let's pray.